Hi, this is Danny Korchmar from The Immediate Family. And I'm Steve Postel from The Immediate Family. And I'm Leland Sklar from The Immediate Family. Hi, it's Wadi Wachtel from The Immediate Family. Hi, it's Russ Kunkel from The Immediate Family. You're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast with Jay Gilbert and Michael Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, here's why shorter songs are surging and why some welcome it. From Bloomberg, Pink Floyd wanted $500 million for its music. What went wrong? From Deadline, Taylor Swift ticket sales crash Ticketmaster, ignite fan backlash. And from Billboard, what's it like using TikTok's music streaming app? And why do we care? Well, we'll tell you why we care about that because, well, I can't tell you too much, but Jay and I are are, uh, strapping ourselves in here and we are ready to rock and we are glad you are here. So uh, let us start. What do you say, Jay? We'll start the show right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Oh, Jay, so good to see you on a Saturday morning. We're back to Saturday mornings yeah. for the time being, exactly, at least. And uh, we have so many things to cover and a lot of things that are we have sort of been talking about anyway throughout the last uh, a couple of episodes. And yeah. we're gonna, we have more information and so many exciting... It's, it's, it's been a busy week. We're heading into the holidays yeah. and, and a lot of stuff on the horizon things that yeah. we see over the horizon that are coming this way and that's what we're going to talk about yeah and before we get going how about that intro from uh the immediate family uh, some of the most iconic uh musicians in music history there's a documentary coming uh, that we've been kind of teasing out um i've only seen a small portion of it but it's at the film festivals right now so uh, stay tuned for that. And I had the pleasure of seeing the band play live last night, and it was uh, there were a lot of smiles in the crowd last night. It was great. I can only imagine. They are such cool guys. Uh, yeah, you've you've known them, and I got to interview them for some uh, NPR stuff. And uh, just, I mean, they have stories, you know. And both you and I love stories. And of course, you we we grew up, you know. Of course, we were we were album jacket readers. Yeah, and you start recognizing names and. Mm-hmm. Those guys were all over everything. 
Oh everything. Yeah. yeah. Not Jackson only was, Brown, James Taylor, yeah. you know, um, Carol King's tapestry um, in the air tonight, Phil Collins, you could go on and on and on. In fact, in this documentary, they kind of have this family tree that will, will blow your mind. But uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, with my partner, Chris Schmidt, I was uh, fortunate enough to shoot their last album and we're uh, about ready to shoot their new album. And uh, we got to see them live last night and it was just a joyous night. Well, what's interesting too about all those guys is that in an era when there were lots of heavyweight session guys and lots of heavyweight live players, they did both. Yeah. So that that was point. some yeah somewhat unique and you know and 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 they're just such humble chaps and and yet you know when when you just kind of poke them or ask a little question you just get the most remarkable stories yeah. <laughs> and it's like wow oh my god Leland Sklar uh, is absolutely hilarious yes he is got a great sense of humor and of course he's got a funny YouTube channel as well where he goes yeah. it's very much worth watching and and uh, he's got yeah, a and he's a local out. guy he's got a book out he yeah. is he, he is a busy busy hombre yeah um, cool very, stuff very cool so stuff. thanks yeah. guys we really appreciate it so, Jay, it's a big week in the music business, to say the least. Yeah, you know, the 2023 Grammy nominations were announced. Uh, the mm -hmm. actual broadcast will be Sunday, February 5th on CBS, but you can also stream it on Paramount+. Plus. And not to be outdone, the actual Latin Grammy broadcast, the 2022 Latin Grammys uh, were this last week, uh, last Thursday in Las Vegas, mm -hmm. officially the 23rd Latin Grammys. Yeah, absolutely. And some very interesting things going on in the Latin market. Now, we've talked about that, about this so much. Yeah. Um, and a, and a, an amazing article in the New York Times uh, with the headline, not, and of course, we've talked about this artist, well, once or twice, won't you? <laughs> right. Uh, Bad Bunny anchors a year of explosive growth for Latin music. The most nominated artist at the Latin Grammys has earned blockbuster numbers on streaming and on tour in 2022. Huge. Uh, but he's not the only Spanish language artist finding fresh listeners. And boy, it's, you know, and this this has been, again, the, the really the... Um, when we talk about streaming and 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 the worldwide appeal and the ex-US appeal to even people in the US. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty stunning how things have have moved the needle when it comes to Latin music. Yeah. And we uh I think it was about a year ago when we first uh, met Bruno Del Granado, you know, from mm -hmm. CAA and he mentioned to us, "Hey, you know, I love the show. Um you guys should talk a little bit more about what's going on in Latin music. And as we dug into it, we found that we had totally missed the boat on, you know, Bad Bunny and, and you know, the touring and just in popular music in general. And this New York Times piece that you mentioned, they had some really interesting stats. Um, one was that in the first half of 2022, sales of Latin music recordings reached over 500, actually it was like $510 million in the United States. And that was a new peak according to the RIAA. So that says it may pass a billion by the end of the year. And yes. here's the weird part. Of that billion dollars, 97% is from streaming. You know, And that indicates that the audience is young, tech savvy. And according to Spotify, half of its users around the world stream at least one Latin song every month. 
Man, unbelievable. As they said in the article, too, Latin artists were few and far between among the industry's top tours, but that is changing. According to data from the trade publication Polestar, the top 100 tours around the world for the first three quarters of this year include 13 Latin artists who together sold $436 million in tickets, up from nine with $205 million in sales for the same period in 2019, the last comparable year before the pandemic. So... They're killing yeah. it. Yeah. Absolutely killing it. So, yeah, big week uh, with the Grammys, Latin Grammys. Um, and uh, we have some really interesting stories to talk about this week. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And by the way, uh, speaking of, of tours, if, you know, uh, Elton John is doing his last uh, North American shows this weekend or or tomorrow i guess or the dodger stadium run the dodger stadium yeah Yeah. and so the show tomorrow night is going to be broadcast live on disney plus so if you have disney plus and you're not going to go down to dodger stadium uh and i'm going to be sitting on my couch watching that last show (laughs) uh comfortably um yeah so uh, it's you know there, there are several brinks trucks that are being backed up to dodger stadium as we speak right because that's this tour has just generated a ton of money. I can't wait to watch it. Be- besides the fact that I'm a huge Elton John fan, um, his bass player, Matt Bissonette, is a mm-hmm. dear friend of mine. And I've recorded with Matt. Um, I've seen him play dozens and dozens of times. He used to play with, well, many people, including his brother, his brother uh, Greg Bissonette. Um, but he was Rick Springfield's bass player for a while. But he is a fantastic player. And it's always a joy to see him on stage with you know, Elton and, uh, you know, Davy Johnstone and Nigel Olson. It's, it's pretty cool. Yes. And those guys, Nigel has been in the band since 1970, probably. And, and yeah, I mean, he took uh, a break. Da- they, Elton had a different oh, that's band right. there for a few for years, a you know, with that's Caleb right. Quay that's right. and that stuff. But, but you're right. He's, I mean, uh, these guys go back together. Yes. Yeah. To have still two guys in the band that have been there for 50 plus years is pretty Crazy. remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and I wonder, I, I wonder too, what's going to happen with Elton. That guy just, he can't sit still. So. Well, he says he's not going to tour, but it doesn't mean he's not going to play live. Yeah. You know, he'll exactly. still do records. You know, Elton is a king of the duet throughout his entire career, you know, and it's not just Kiki D, right? It's like Dua Lipa, and it's like, you know, he's played with Eminem and Guns N' Roses. I mean, it's, it's nonstop with him. He is such, he's got such a good ear for talent. Yes. And, um, I read his autobiography. I think we talked about it on the show once. And what I love about Elton is he's still a fan. Like he yes. knows chart positions. And he mentioned in the book, he'll be talking to a current artist and he'll say, yeah, congratulations. You had this chart position. And they're like, what? I didn't know that. He knows the chart <laughs> positions better than most people do. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, speaking of Kiki D and Dua Lipa, they will both be on stage in Dodger Stadium. There so it is. that's yeah, that'll be really, really fun. So, um, yeah, well, lots of lots of things to talk about. And but of course, Jay, we must chat about the wonderful folks that make it happen for us, our sponsors. We are so lucky to have them. The Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Banzoogle is an all in one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in. Hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free 
crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go over to Banzoogle.com and try it free for 30 days. Just use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's Banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yes, sir. And uh, Your Morning Coffee, the podcast, is also brought to you by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Bands in Town, over 75 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and finally, a big thank you to the Music Business Association uh, that puts on the Music Biz Conference. Uh, And that's been going on for more than six decades. And it's the point of origin for inspiration and collaboration in the music industry. So join us in Nashville, May 15 through 18. And uh, we'll see you there. Yes, indeed. Big thanks to the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. And of course, the chap that I get to hang out with every Saturday, Jay Gilbert. If you don't know Jay, he is a music industry consultant, curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter, with which this podcast is based upon, and a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. Uh, Yes, sir. And this gentleman sitting across from me, Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. Yes, indeed. I could not keep a job very well, Jay, back in the day. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) Truth be told. Oh boy! Oh, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? It was a it was a volatile business, Jay. It well, still is it a sounds business. like we've had a lot of jobs, but you spread that over a lot of years, and you know, it's not like we're hopping from one to another every year. You know, I was at Universal all told for about eighteen years. That's pretty unique, actually. Pretty unique. You were. That's uh, a blessing to be able to stay at a company for that long. You and what a, what an interesting time you were there. I mean, you started at MCA, and so you yeah. you saw it, it was sort of an also ran. But back when there were six late, yeah, they called labels. it Music Cemetery of America. Of America, that's right. Boy, they turned some things around. And I was at SST. <clears throat> Remember in the days of faxes, you, know, you forget how, how prevalent faxes were. Yeah. Uh, but I was at SST and really just starting my career when across the fax, Irving Azoff's resignation letter, some, somehow everybody got it. And they were faxing it around to all the labels. And even at a, at a little indie label like SST, I remember reading that. And, and he at that time had left MCA. Um, yeah, what a, what, a, what a different landscape it was back then, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Happy to have been there. Yes, indeed. All right. What do you say we jump into the stories, Jay? And starting with our number, our first story, um, it's from Billboard. And we talked about this, was it last week or the week before, about this whole thing with shorter songs. Yeah. And this is a big one in Billboard. Here's why shorter songs are surging and why some welcome it. Um, yeah. Written by Elias Light, who we've mm-hmm. been talking about quite a bit lately. Um, and, and he kicks this off by talking about Lil Yachty. 
you know, in early October, Lil Yachty uploaded an 83 second track called Poland uh, to SoundCloud. And it was along with a grumpy message. Stop leaking my shit. <laughs> Poland <laughs> consists of two keening hooks and some slack rhymes. A veteran publishing executive calls it, quote, an idea, almost a tweet more than a song. <laughs> well, either way, it's a hit, Jay. It reached number 40 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it's part of a larger trend. The average length of popular songs has been shrinking steadily for years. Um, and a 2018 study uh, by San Francisco-based engineer Michael Tauberg concluded that songs on the Billboard Hot 100 shed around 40 seconds since 2000, falling from 4.10-ish to roughly 3 minutes 30 seconds. The average length of the top 50 tracks on Billboard's year-end Hot 100 last year was even less, a mere 3 minutes 7 seconds. Yeah, um, interesting. And Yeah, you know, and it's, I mean, I think one of the things that kind of that I, when I think about this, and it's, I kind of feel like an old guy <clears throat> saying this stuff, but you know, the, the, a lot of these decisions are are made on commerce, not on um, not on art, not on artistic cr- expression, right? Yeah. You know, and so I kind of look at these going, hmm. I mean, I understand yeah. why. You know, it's a streaming world, and and there are are strategies why this makes sense. Well, I think a lot world. of it comes from these short form video platforms like TikTok, and there's where- that. You know, Absolutely. people are used to these short little bite-sized chunks. Yep. And, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, a lot of that. Now, of course, short songs aren't exactly a new trend. You know, as Elias points out in this piece, you know, back in the early 1960s, um, there was the Chiffon's He's So Fine, which was a minute 52. Wow. Know, and, that, and the Beatles rose to international fame, and I love this line, by releasing a series of snub-nosed pop missiles. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I think some of this has to do with that short form video that we talked about, but also they, they mentioned in this piece that people may play a song over and over again, play it more often if it's shorter. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's an interesting thing. Um, um, and, and as you mentioned, you know, I mean, people just, it's just the attention spans of music listeners has just, you know, they're used to these short bites and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, that's just the way the business is now and the way yeah. attention spans are and the way listeners <clears throat> are. And so you yeah. kind of, you, you react to that reality. Right. And um, you mentioned something a second ago that I think is key here. And that is it's, it's a streaming world, you know, um, Taylor Illitzer says, uh, she's a former Capitol records A&R rep. She says that people are acutely aware of skip rates and how that relates to success on streaming services. You know, tracks with lower skip rates are prioritized by the platforms. Right. And Taylor believes that a short song is less likely to be skipped. Right, exactly. So, <laughs> and, and as, as the article goes on, most importantly, song snippets resonate, like we said, with a generation of listeners used to short-form video apps. Uh, David Harris uh, says, to me, this really started in the with the Vine era and Instagram. Brief clips have achieved a new level of commercial resonance in the music industry thanks to TikTok, where users repeatedly seize on fragments of unfinished singles and incorporate them into videos, making a mockery, Jay, of the idea <laughs> Idea that a popular track must include a verse and a hook. <laughs> so, there you go. All right. Well, it's pointed out here, you know, what's the difference between an explosive moment and a song? Since yeah. 2020, you know, if not before, 
A heap of young acts have gone viral with the former and then scrambled to transform it into the latter, you know, to build a full yeah. track around a snippet from TikTok. And we've talked about that a little bit, how some of these new artists, especially when we're discussing A&R, how not, not all of them, but there's a handful of these that maybe haven't played a live show. They haven't even recorded a full song. They only have that Don't snippet. Th and, yes. you know, some of these snippets that have become pretty big hits include uh, Will Paquin's, you know, flashy chandelier, 85 million streams. Uh, David Kushner's will be gone. Miserable man, 73 million and Avenue beats goofy F 2020, uh, 54 million. So as singles get shorter, the gap between the song and a hooky fragment begins to lose meaning. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. So uh, uh, Bart Shadell, I think that's pretty, pretty, pretty yeah, close I think today, so. who's a longtime engineer and vocal producer, <laughs> said, you know, was to a lot of people, he said, I think the snippet that they encounter on TikTok is the song. Yeah. So you've got a lot of, of, of young listeners for whom they don't know. This is this is just their reality. This is what they've, they've grown up with. And yeah, a snippet's a song. Uh, what we call a snippet is not a snippet to them, it's a song to them. Right, and they talk about it on the dance floor as well, that that snippet is what they know. So um, Kuya Magic, uh, a producer DJ with more than 11 million TikTok followers says, if you go to a club and watch people dance, they only dance to the 15 seconds of a song that's famous on TikTok. For the rest of it, <laughs> they just sit there. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh, if nothing makes me feel old, it's that, Jay. But yeah. I must admit, you know, when I when, once like uh, the the DAWs, the DAW, Digital Audio Workstations, with which we record this song, once they came out, when they came, first came out, and I started messing around with them, I remember chopping up songs and 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 re um, adding uh, like little snippets of the song that I liked. I would just kind of loop them together so it was longer in a song like kind of doing my own edits nice so maybe this is kind of expected you know because i think we all gravitate sometimes towards little portions of songs and kind of it's like oh god i love that guitar part oh oh i love that kind yeah. of harmony that they're doing there um so this is just kind of that on steroids i suppose right it's, yeah it's, it's you're just only getting that yeah it's super interesting Great piece. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, this. really good piece. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just, it's the new normal. And like I said, though, it, it, it makes sense from a from a commerce standpoint as well. Yeah. Without a doubt. Without Speaking a doubt. of commerce, this next piece is from Bloomberg. Oh, my goodness. Pink <laughs> Floyd wanted $500 million for its music. What went wrong, Jay? What could possibly go wrong? Well, I thought this was really interesting because there's been this, you know, for the last... I don't know, two years plus this gold rush on these companies like BMG, KKR, Primary Wave, Hypnosis. They're buying up these catalogs. And it's interesting because you just kind of assume that they're going to be big money. Yes. But as you kind of dig into this Pink Floyd story, and we'll, we'll dig into it in a second, there, there are reasons why it's not hitting the numbers um, that maybe they they wanted it to. I found this really interesting article, um, which I'll probably run in your morning coffee next week, and it's on a journal of musical things. And the headline is, here's a running list of artists who have sold some or all of their catalogs to a new breed of company. And I think this is a good way to tee up this um, story. I'm just going to go through like some of the top 10, you know, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Stevie Nicks, Imagine Dragons, Whitney Houston, David Crosby, Disturbed, 
The Killers, Lindsey Buckingham, and Barry Manilow. And some of these deals involve masters. Some mm-hmm. of them involve publishing, name and likeness, some varying combinations of all of these. But let's dig into the Pink Floyd because there are several reasons why this hasn't hit that 500 million mark that they wanted. But let's be fair, there have been, I think they've discussed offers of, you know, like 400 million. So it's not like this thing is a fire sale. It's just not maybe what they thought it would be. Right. This article, by the way, is by Lucas Shaw. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and when I first saw this, uh, the first thing I thought was, I thought those guys were like still kind of fighting, you know? I so, think they are. They are. Yeah, that's right. They are, as a matter of fact. So, you know, and so there's so many variables when you're talking, as you mentioned, when, when you talked about this, but then then also not only are there variables what is offered for sale, but also the sort of um, the little catches with each thing. So, you know, do you do you still have approval for certain things? And so uh, as, it, as, as the article started, it said when they decided to sell their catalog, they had every reason to believe they'd score a payday that would take care of their great-grandchildren. Uh, legendary acts have been closing deals for record sums, and few of them had a roster of albums as popular as Dark Side of the Moon and the Wall. Uh, yeah. But as they say, months into the process, the band hasn't reached a deal. The list of potential bidders has shrunk, and the estimated value has along with it. And they said the simplest explanation is that the band is asking too much money, uh, which has happened in other areas of the music business, including the attempted sales of Concord, Round Hill Music, Anthem, Tempo, and BMI. That's right. But don't forget what's going on in the economy right now. Rising interest rates have tempered buyers' exuberance for song catalogs. Uh, And then some of the most aggressive buyers, like Hypnosis Songs, are also being held in check by their financial partners, which I had not... I'd forgotten that they do have financial partners. Of course, right. (laughs) Of course. And, you know... uh, But you would think that if there's any band, any band in the world that would be able to, as they say, withstand economic headwinds, uh, that would be something like Pink Floyd. You're talking about a band that has sold 75 million records in the U.S. alone, the 10th most of any artist. Uh, it ranks among the best-selling acts in history. Um, but, and this is, this is the asterisk by a lot of these things, it says this particular process has had another wrinkle or two. As potential buyers got more details about what was really on the table, their valuations of the asset fell. The band was selling its recordings as well as the rights to use their name, image, and likeness. But the copyright for certain songs, at least in the UK, expires in a couple of decades. Yeah, but the big elephant in the room in this article is that, like what you just said, you know, this is, they're talking about the masters, name and mm-hmm. likeness. They're not talking about publishing. Exactly. And that's, uh, that's a big deal, especially when you're talking about sync licensing and some of these areas where some of these companies make a majority of their revenue. So I think... The reason it's not selling so quickly is, well, you know, like like you just said, you know, some of these copyrights are going to expire. But more importantly, it's just the master name and likeness and not the publishing. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, that's I'm sure that deal will get done. Um, and and what a unique situation for having them to own their masters. But they don't want to get rid of the publishing. And I and I've the publishing, I bet, is pretty complex. Um so I don't know, but it's, uh, you know, that these things are, these are the behind the scene things that you have to consider if you're purchasing catalogs, yeah. be it whatever the catalogs are of. And 
you know, what rights do you have? And um, that can get sticky. And this is a band that continues to argue amongst themselves. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, singer and bassist Roger Waters left the band in 1985, and he sued the other guys over the use of the name, and which they won, and they've toured and released music as Pink Floyd, and that would be David Gilmore and Nick Mason. Um, So, you know, there's that infighting, uh, which yes. makes it challenging, and you can't get those guys to agree on where to go to lunch, let alone you know how to handle this <laughs> uh, right. this big sale. But I thought it was interesting um, near the end of the piece. It says, you know, they, Pink Floyd has gotten at least one offer for more than four hundred million dollars, and there is one potential buyer still hosting regular calls with the sellers. So again, it's not like this thing has gone completely south. It's just not what they expected. They thought with this kind of gold rush for IP that that 500 million would be a, an easy mark. You know, it's funny what, what jumped out at me. It, it was just one of the top paragraph lines. Singer and bassist Roger Rodgers left the band in 1985. He has been out of the band for 30 plus years, far longer than he was in the band. It's, it, it, I, you know, I've forgotten it was been that long since he split from the band. Yeah. It's too bad. Well, anyway, I don't think uh, we should feel too sorry for them, whether it's 400 million, you know, for those masters name and likeness. That's still a nice little uh, payday. We're not going to see those guys in a a soup line anytime soon at all. Well, this is a a thing that has dominated the news cycle this week, Jay. The next one, number three from Deadline, Taylor Swift ticket sales crash Ticketmaster ignite fan backlash. Oh my gosh, a bit of a mess a that was. It was, and I and, and my ironically, my daughter was uh, in that uh, in that scrum trying to get tickets for the show, uh, and what a mess it was. She kept getting bounced out, and it was. You know, I was kind of seeing it in real time as she was dealing with it. Um, yeah, it was a mess. And but you and I before the show were looking at the tour dates. For crying out loud, she's doing five dates at SoFi here in L.A. Five, which is dates, a massive venue. Which is a massive venue, absolutely. As we look through her her concert dates, she's doing in most cities. She's doing three stadium dates. Um, crazy, absolutely crazy. Well, the it's demand crazy. there is is high, and there's some finger pointing going on uh, <laughs> yes. between the various camps, um, which we'll get to in a second. But um, this this piece by Tom Tap um, from Deadline. I thought it was funny. He said that uh, some compared it to the Hunger Games. <laughs> Overwhelming demand um, from these fans who had rocketed 10 songs from Swift's most recent release, Midnight's, to the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. First time uh, you know, this has ever happened in the chart's history. It caused what Ticketmaster characterized as, you ready for this, intermittent issues with the site. That's uh, an understatement. Uh, Potential ticket buyers complained of waiting for hours with little or nothing to show for it. Others said they were being automatically logged out without being allowed to complete their purchases. I mean, it was just an absolute nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I don't know what to say about this. It's it is. Um, I mean, you know, I, I on one hand, I do have a, a, a wee bit of empathy for Ticketmaster and for systems like that. You know, when you have, even when you plan for X plus or three times X, you know, when it hits four times X, which this sort of did, you know, it. it but then again, that's their business, and it should. You would think they would have prepared for that when you're doing five stadium dates in a city. 
that's a whatever that is. It's, I mean, just using round numbers, that that could be you know a quarter of a million people getting tickets. Yeah. So that's that's going to be, and it, you would expect that there's more than that demand. So yeah. I can understand that crashing, but in the system, just I being don't know. Here, I mean, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, Taylor Swift and her camp were in advance, you know, asking Ticketmaster, you sure you got this? Are you sure you can handle this demand, you know, um, leading up to this? So it wasn't uh, a shock. What's interesting is that now Congress is getting involved. And if you read uh, Glenn Peoples, The Ledger, his weekly newsletter this week, he mentions that Senator Amy Klobuchar sent an open letter to Live Nation CEO Michael Rapino detailing her concerns about the state of competition in the ticketing industry and its harmful impact on consumers. And as Glenn points up, uh, you know, breaking up Live Nation and Ticketmaster wouldn't necessarily have prevented uh, this problem. But they mentioned in this deadline piece that, uh, you know, um, this was brought up like in 1995 when Pearl Jam, you know, was testifying before Congress, you know, about what they called uh, monopolistic practices, you know, and they even testified on it. So, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said, you know, she tweeted, daily reminder that Ticketmaster is a monopoly. It's a merger with Live Nation that never should have been approved and they need to be reined in. So I think now this debacle with these tickets is is bleeding over into all of these other areas that people are angry about. But the bottom line is there was so much demand uh, for these tickets um, that there was one line in here where they said that if they would have, you know, fulfilled all of these tickets, it would have been on it would have been like 90 straight stadium shows, you know, um, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. But you know, and it just seems like every, uh, I don't know, every, every year, every other year, there seems to be sort of a, a huge pushback on these big ticket companies, whether it's, it's, it's the problems with the system or whether it's insane high fees, which there are, um, you know, and I don't, I don't, there is not a simple answer. That's the problem. You know, you no. can't, as Glenn said, you know, you, you breaking them up is not necessarily the answer. Um, but I don't know what is, to be honest. Well, you and I talked about ticket pricing and that's a whole different ball game. Yes. Um, and we were uh, educated from some smart people about, you know, it's supply and demand. And if they don't um, have that dynamic pricing, it's just going to go on the, the secondary market anyhow. Um, but I will say that the Department of Justice has launched uh, a Live Nation slash Ticketmaster investigation. And so, you know, some of these things are going to to come to light. But I, I feel badly for the millions of fans um, that, you know, uh, they were on hold for hours. They got kicked out. Some of them, you know, they actually... Uh, got a credit card, a capital one credit card, you know, because that, there was a promotion involved there and yes. they thought that that might help them get to the front of the line and they did everything they were asked to do. And then it's, it's done. And, and now what? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that this is going to be one of the most anxiously anticipated tours. It's going to be one of the most successful tours and she yeah. is just going to kill it. And, my goodness, when you do five stadium dates in a city like Los Angeles, 
I mean, that's, I'm trying to think of other, is, can you name another artist that could probably pull that off? No. Yeah. No, maybe, maybe Bad Bunny. Uh, <laughs> Bad Bunny. That's right. You know, that's but, right. but not very many. I had said 90 stadiums. I meant 900 stadiums. And, and the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, Live Nation actually kind of riled people up even more, basically saying that, um, you know, they had 14 million people hit the site, but including bots, which is well, a whole other yeah. issue, yes. right? That they're not supposed to be there. And said that despite all these challenges and breakdowns, they did sell over 2 million tickets that day that would have filled that 900 stadiums. But they're claiming that the fault isn't on Live Nation or Ticketmaster, but on the incomprehensible demand for tickets. The singer, he suggested, is simply too famous. <laughs> oh. okay. okay, let me write that down. Thank you for that observation. All right. Hmm. Well, uh, I yeah, I'm 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 kind of curious to I I I would like to see the show. Um, yeah, having never seen her live, I'm kind of curious what what I'm sure it's going to be a, a huge huge successful tour, but I'm I'm very curious what it's going to be like. Uh, let's move on to the next one, Jay, uh, and this is again something that we've talked about a bunch uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. This is from Billboard. What's it like using TikTok's music streaming app? And, um, yeah, guess it's what? not available it, here yet. Um, it's so not. what they did, which I thought was genius is they went to these countries where it's live and they had representatives do a test drive and see what it was, what it was all about. You know, we call it Resso. They call it Resso. This is that TikTok, you know, distributions, uh, for music, but they've also, um, trademarked TikTok music. So it leads some to believe like on socials and things, it's, it's going to be TikTok uh, music. But as we dig in, um, let's just point out that there are a billion active users on TikTok and, and music is such a big part of it. And TikTok discoveries lead to streaming. It's been proven, you know, in DSPs like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and with Resso slash TikTok music, they're looking to keep those uh, users in their own ecosystem. Exactly. And, in the platform. And we'll see. But let's, let's dig into what they found about this, uh, this Resso. Yes. Well, as, as we were kind of teased at the beginning, you know, this, this is on the horizon. It's not really a question of if, it is just a question of when. Uh, it says, indeed, Resso or TikTok music is coming and promises to shake up the competitive landscape currently dominated by Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, and YouTube. Uh, yeah, so they checked it out. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, there's a few things that are kind of interesting. So, um, first of all, Resso users can comment on a song and share it on social media, okay, including lyric quotes which users can choose specific lines for. They can also discover other people's profiles through the comment section uh, or from the list of those who like the songs. User profiles have a picture and about me and a cover image that can be personalized. It also displays users' music preferences, playlists, following, and followers. And on Resso, users can follow and send messages to one another. Okay. And this is something that um, Apple Music, um, actually when it was iTunes back in the day, had... Uh, played around with, um, I know other DSPs have played around with trying to integrate that social aspect to right. the DSP. And it sounds like they're, they're going all in. 
Um, and, and I love that, you know, you had mentioned a lyric integration in there and that feedback. So, you know, if, if there are wrong lyrics to a song, um, it's kind of like this Wikipedia thing where you can help correct, uh, those as well. Um, they said that the discovery in, in Reso slash TikTok music was disappointing. Um, Similar to TikTok, users swipe up and down to navigate between the songs, which feels like the user is scrolling through a web article or navigating an endless stream of music content. Instead, the preview, next, shuffle, and repeat buttons that music players usually have. Um, Resso displays time sync lyrics, we talked about, but its recommendation in engine lacks consistency and falls short in music discovery compared to Spotify and YouTube. I thought that was really important. Right. Uh, They said in India, streaming the latest Taylor Swift single produced a prompt similar to Antihero, but clicking on it took a user to a playlist of the most played English language hits in India. In Brazil, a classic samba playlist consisted of only 12 songs, some of which were not classics. Um, And then uh, in Indonesia, initial recommendations turned up random Indonesian songs, some Japanese anime soundtracks, a lot of pop titles and remixes or covers by lesser known artists. So, I mean, listen, be honest, this is, they are really testing it out. This is not really a fully baked product. That's right. Them being in these, in these regions where, you know, they're sort of off the beaten track in terms of the global scope. Yeah, and that's a Silicon Valley thing, right? That whole test things out, version Mm 1.0, and improve as you um, scale. Um, I thought it was interesting that they don't have import restrictions, meaning that you can import playlists from over 10 other streaming services, including Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, YouTube. Um, I thought that was really interesting that you could pull that music in. You know, it allows Resso access to their phone's microphone. They unlock a function to identify songs, sort of like the Shazam app. So that's kind of built in there as well. It must be noted there are no Sony artists. <clears throat> uh, member Billboard reported earlier this year that Sony Music Entertainment pulled its catalog uh, from Resso globally. The absence was noticeable in all three countries. Yeah, that's uh, a big deal. Addi- yeah, that is a big deal. So uh, it says Resso's top 50 playlist in, in India was missing, uh, well, missing just a lot of things, of course, because you don't have, you know, one of the majors. So right. we'll see if that gets worked well, out. Well, that's a but big that, problem because the moment you is. go on there and try to find, you know, uh, Harry Styles and he's not there, that's that's not competitive. The other thing that was kind of a negative is that there were so many ads. Um, their monthly subscription tier is about $1.45 in India, $3.19 in Brazil, three forty six in Indonesia for the individual plan. You know, about the same level as Spotify in India, slightly lower in, in the other countries. Um, but the number of ads per hour, you know, on the ad-supported is higher than on Spotify, and users need to manually close those ads uh, for the next song to play. In India, the ad-supported users are limited to 60 minutes of music per day, um, though watching a 15 to 20 second long video ad unlocks an additional hour. To me, that's wonky. It's just, it's not a good user experience. Right. Now, I'm sure that they are capturing all of this data and, and 
compiling a gigantic list of bugs and features and all kinds of things like that that one does with platforms. Um, so they, they will work that out. Um, Billboard had a companion article. Um, TikTok has Gen Z hooked. Can its streaming service get them to pay for music? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they are coming full, fork, full, full force to this market. Um, but And, you know, I think everyone is is eyeing this um, somewhat suspiciously, but also optimistically, right? Because yeah. it, tic- TikTok is such an important part of, of the discovery of music now. Yeah. And perhaps whatever they deliver here in, in the States might be something that will really take everyone by storm. Um, yeah. But as, the, as this article starts, it says, ask music business executives to characterize their relationship with TikTok. And the response is typically a variation of, uh, it's complicated. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's that is an understatement. It yeah, is and I think I think that uh, uh, Universal uh, Chairman CEO Lucian Grange, you know, put it best. You know, that when you look at the funnel that TikTok has, and you look at the billions of views, the rate in which the company has grown, he said, we will fight and determine how our artists get paid and when they get paid in the same way that we have done throughout the industry for many years. Because the big knock right now is. There's just so little revenue being paid uh, from TikTok. And as you and I covered last week, you know, they made $12 billion in the last year. And whether that's giving the music industry, you know, uh, a percentage of ad revenues, you know, a piece of the company, uh, but you can't build your business on the back uh, of the music business and not expect to pay for it. But the challenge that we talked about last week is that you don't want to you know, screw yourself out of this great promotional tool. Um, so you have to balance the commerce that, and being um, paid fairly with uh, having this great new force to get people to listen to music. Hence the phrase, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Uh, it says, one of the biggest pain points for major rights holders and a potential barrier to ByteDance's entry into the music streaming, into music streaming, is the flat fee licensing agreements that TikTok has with major rights holders. Negotiations are ongoing to get TikTok to return more value for the music it uses, including a cut of the advertising it generates. Uh, it, and right now, as, as someone said, no one right now wants to help ByteDance expand into, into significant material marketplace without them fixing the TikTok situation, says an executive from the industry sector. Other executives pointed to YouTube as a potential model for the relationship with TikTok moving forward. In that same October earnings call uh, that that you referenced, Jay, uh, Lucian Grange noted that YouTube recently announced that they were paying out uh, to rights holders $6 billion over a year-long period and have stated they want to be the number one contributor of revenue to the music industry by 2025. So that's what they want ByteDance slash TikTok Music slash Reso to, to model their service on, that sort of attitude about we want to contribute lots of dollars to the rights holders. Yeah, I like the way that sounds. Yes, I do too. But will it? Will they? It would be interesting to see what, if that way they where they stand on negotiations like that. Yeah, yeah. As uh, Henry Droz uh, told me, um, it's not about the money; it's about the money. You know, meaning it's <laughs> it's always about the money. Yeah, it's you know, and and so these are these again these licensing issues are 
really crucial. But uh, as they say, we're, if, if they can get these issues resolved, a new major player in the streaming ecosystem could bring in enormous value with such a user-friendly funnel. There's the possibility that a TikTok music streaming service could shake up what has become a fairly staid, predictable marketplace. Uh, Tatiana uh, Sirisano, who's oh, a consultant media. over... From media, yeah. yeah. She says, TikTok is where the actual cultural fandom is happening. Spotify and other streamers still benefit from this because people hear songs on TikTok and go stream them on other platforms. But if those, as you said, Jay, if those people can just stay within the ByteDance ecosystem to do that and have their music delivered to them alongside the cultural context, I think that they will. Yeah, I, I think that they will. That should really start to make Spotify and Apple Music and other platforms a lot more nervous. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge, but the potential is massive. And the last thing I'll say on this is they end the piece by saying that one major label executive uh, talking about the licensing conversations, he says, and I quote, we know the difference between hard and impossible, and we think this is in the category of hard. Yeah. So there's a little bit of optimism there that we can, you know, work this out for the music industry. And again, that potential is is substantial. Right. And don't forget, though, that they do mention in this article, too, that that because ByteDance is a a Chinese owned company and it's kind of come under fire in in recent years over data privacy issues, Mm. that is a different little bit of a wrinkle in this process as well. You know, when you, it is one thing to work out negotiations and and, uh, royalties and things like that with the music companies, but you might also have sort of a federal issue to kind of work through as well. So to be continued, to be continued, we will no doubt talk about this in the future and have further conversations. Um, my goodness, Jay, it's almost time to wrap it up. You were yeah. getting ready to travel and... Uh, yeah, heading to the airport. Maybe, but, heading to uh, the airport. But we'll be back again next week. Yes, we will. And we also, because I want a big, also big thanks to our sponsors, Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. We certainly appreciate everything they do for us, and we could not do it without them. And we want to thank our listeners because we uh, we do not take for granted the fact that folks join us when we do this every week. So, on behalf of Jay Gilbert and myself, we say thank you. Have a great week, and we are heading into the Thanksgiving weekend or week here in uh, in the United States. So, happy holidays to everyone who's listening. And Jay and I will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast. <music>